0: Hey guys. Due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking To Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk.
1: Good morning, faithful reader.
0: Welcome, fortunate seeker.
1: This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata.
0: Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where
1: a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as
0: What is this other place Rashid mentioned?
1: If Eris is so perfect, then why don't you slowly fall in love with her while also hating her, leading you to thirsting for her over the course of years, while planning to trap her in her own personal hell for an eternity? And
0: does Catherine smell in a way that upsets goblins? Honestly,
1: that must be why they like her so much. Threats are useless unless you have previously committed the level of violence you are threatening to use. Make examples of the enemies you cannot control, so those that you can will be cowed. This is the foundation of ruling. Extract from the personal memoirs of Dread Emperor Terribilis II. In this chapter, we get our introduction to a number of relatively important players for the early story and to one player who's very important for the entire story. Cat starts off by having a brief discussion with the other claimants. There's some arguing, some name calling, some weird racism, and they basically agree that there should be a goal other than simply killing each other first. After this, Cat makes her way back to black where she overhears a conversation between Black and this new player I mentioned, Eris. Our first introduction to one of the more interesting characters in the guide. We find out she's incredibly attractive and better than Kat in every way. And the chapter pretty much ends
0: there. This serves as an introduction to a little more than some of the characters and the plot of the next couple of chapters. We also get our first introduction, really, to some of the major races and groups of praise. The masked man we've been dealing with, who we find out soon enough is named Rashid, is Taugrebi. We meet Tamika, who is Sininke, and we get our first on screen, pretty typical goblin, except it is red in Chider. And This is a fun group of people. Not only are they racially diverse, hashtag forced diversity, but they're, if you ask me, concerned. we get very little of their stories, almost weirdly comfortable with the situation. Catherine, the apprentice of the Black Knight, is the one who goes into this feeling underprepared. I'm curious where these people come from and why they're so familiar with the process of name acquisition is it common knowledge and praise and if it is why hasn't it trickled to callow or do these people all have a unique and fascinating backstory much like a group of D characters at level one all of whom are the chosen one and are god-blooded and orphans and have a personal vendetta against the ruler of the land because they're special are these just main characters who didn't get to be ah
1: it's hard to say and it's especially interesting to me for chider considering the name they're going for is a name that I can't... Im- it's a transition name, of course. The, and I can't imagine it transi- transitions into anything that isn't knighthood-related. And a goblin knight is an interesting possibility.
0: A goblin named is an interesting possibility. we see names almost chiefly among humans. Uh, I don't know what to really say about the drow. They're playing with a different subsystem. And... Ogre achieves the name. An orc achieves the name twice. But goblin named are not a part of the story. Dwarves have names in their own way.
1: And a half-elf has names. It it pretty much is... I have no funny comment. Fair enough. It, it, It pretty much is humans and dwarves, yes. Everything else is not named or has exceptions.
0: All of which is to say, I really hope Chider wins.
1: It would be great to just follow Chider having won this contest and, you know, becoming the Squire. Sorry, Kat, you're great, but like, come on.
0: No, I'm beginning to get the feeling that it wouldn't actually matter who won. All of these characters are in some fundamental and key ways more or less the same as Catherine. When Chider sneers in the very beginning, mocking humans, Catherine says, It was an impressive sneer, even compared to the unmourned Governor Mazes. I bet she'd practiced it in front of a mirror. That is a statement of envy. That is a statement of intention. Catherine sees the sneer and says, oh, I'm going to be like that. These are the same character.
1: The same character, except that one of Tamika's first lines is just what I have to imagine, unless she made it up on the spot as some kind of specific reference, just a racial slur of sorts towards the Tigrebi. She refers to to him as a sand rat. I I don't know. It that's not Cat's thing. She's a little weird about other people who are not Callowin, but some of that just feels like uh it's a fantasy medieval setting and there's a little bit of xenophobia. This is just a weird racism thing to, to just show up from this character very suddenly, especially since her first line in this chapter is saying that the uh Rashid has Half a mind, as the Tigrebi are born with, half a mind. I don't know. It's just not the kind of thing that it's not the kind of thing that comes up often, aside from species differences in the book. It, you know, basically just from the Pracy, I suppose. But it just it stands out to me.
0: We you know that's a very good point. Catherine doesn't seem to have much of a concern with ethnicity, other than. Perhaps later on in some practical considerations of demographic resettlement or such, I'm not sure, but that may come up. In fact, in the next line, she says, I could sympathize with wanting to mock some of your fellow countrymen. I didn't know an uncanny amount of jokes about southern Callowins, but she seemed to genuinely believe what she just said. And Catherine is just assuming that the differences between Tagrebi and Saninke, which are real... And ancient cultural, linguistic, ethnic differences are the same as two different regional groupings of a relatively monolithic people. Racism doesn't seem to be a dimension Catherine can really even grok. Nationalism, sure. But eventually, if an orc's a Calowin orc, it's a Calowin. Who cares? But, no, well, unless it's Southern Calowin, because you know how they are.
1: He <laughs> does? She does recognize she does recognize race here, meaning specifically human races, you know, sort of the the real life use for race rather than fantasy races. Um she does recognize how other people view that distinction uh, a number of times, uh, especially she refers later on in the next chapter about she refers to how people are, viewing her because of her coloration and she can make assumptions based on people's allegiances based on where it seems like they are from that sort of thing. But it's definitely not, it's definitely not this kind of thing that uh, Tamika is doing. Uh, There's a clear distinction there. And I, I think you're right though. I don't think it's necessarily this upstanding moral stance by Kat. I think it's just not in her paradigm, not in her, culture, I suppose. Not not in how she lives her life to be aware of that kind of thing. It's not normal for her. It, it's not something that she's fighting against. It's just not how people in lore, I guess, exist.
0: Small blessings. But, you know, Kelwins truly are the most moral people around. You'll notice that when Chider and Tamika calm the tensions around the fire, when they recognize that this is not a place for doing violence, Kat notices the racism, recognizes that these are not necessarily the most morality oriented people, generally speaking. With a sigh, I sheathed my sword. Kat recognizes they're not terribly moral, and I'm really disappointed I can't just kill them now. And that's a moral paragon right there.
1: Hard to argue with that. And it. <laughs> I, I don't. This chapter and the previous chapter, Kat makes a few references to kind of. She's a little cagey about whether she was setting out to murder someone or not. This line definitely hurts her ability to, <laughs> uh, just with a straight face, say that this was not an, uh, a mission to kill.
0: So I need your help with something. Okay. Catherine hears the invocation of the guest right? I offer you the shelter of my fire, stranger, into Grebi. And she notes that her Mthethwa was a lot better. Mostly because she'd practice it more. Do you n- know if there's a particular reason for that that we're aware of? Is there any, is this just our first insight into how the language learning's been going, comparatively, relatively? Why wouldn't Mthethwa be bigger than Tagrebi in her initial study?
1: Mm-hmm. I- I'm wondering if it's just as simple as looking at the political realities of the world she's heading towards by moving to the east slowly since they're taking a break here um and the knowledge that she probably needs her mfaithwa to be functionally perfect as soon as possible to be fluent as soon as possible whereas maybe Tigrebi can wait a bit because she's not directly heading to the desert i don't know it is i don't know if it is a priority thing maybe mfaithwa is more similar to what she's familiar with already and so it's easier to practice it Maybe the uh, the Blackguards speak it, and so she's got some people to practice with more easily. I can see that a, number makes of, a
0: world of difference.
1: Yeah, I, I can see a number of reasons why it would be that aren't necessarily super meaningful or revealing anything other than convenience or a priority based on just mundane considerations.
0: This time through, I'm going to pay a lot more attention to the languages as they come across. I think my first reading, it was just... Mfaithwa Tegrebi, praise. Sorry, Mfaithwa Tegrebi, even Karsum, praise. French, Prosser, German, the love of my life, you know, what have you.
1: Sure, I I agree. I'm very curious to pay a little more attention, especially on my first read-through, I would see Mfaithwa, I would see Tegrebi, and they would be the languages that she's learning. And sure, we're learning that Tegrebi is spoken by a certain group of people and all of these things are said, but there's no context. I don't know what that means. I don't really know what Prace is other than the evil empire. And knowing a little bit more context for all of these languages on this read-through, I think will make it easier to pay attention to the differences in how Cat approaches them. There's We just have more information on what they mean. Speaking of language, though, uh, just a brief side note here. We get another of Cat's phrases. She does say piglets to diamonds again. We're still not to rubies. Just like with a couple other things, gotta pay attention as this comes up. We said we would, and here I am.
0: It's amazing how long different things can be at the beginning, because we spend so long admiring the well, so long acknowledging, maybe venerating the gods below, so long having our piglets be rubied that you forget how long it wasn't, or even that it was wasn't.
1: It turns out this is just a really long story.
0: I actually did the math the other day. It turns out that a practical guide to evil. It's more than two times as long as the average Junie B. Jones book.
1: Wow. Uh, thank you for doing that math. And I mean, that's the kind of research that we really need to start bringing to this podcast. So I really appreciate that.
0: I'm beginning to think we have an unreliable narrator. What makes you say? Catherine asks, once the guest right is extended and accepted under duress, she states, it's pracy cultural fun times over yet. I asked politely. This story is through Catherine's lens and Catherine's lens alone, and her lens is sardonic. From this, she goes on to say that they need to get the hells out of there. Thank you for acknowledging below a little bit. Quote, if we don't want to spend the rest of the night in Legion custody, end quote. And I don't mean to encourage Catherine to be some spoiled rich brat, but does she know who her father is? Can she spend the night in Legion custody, even already? She's sort of above that. by. Association.
1: I mean, on the flip side, let's say she, the the legionaries burst into this little meeting and I was about to say kidnap, which I do mean, but the technical word is probably arrest and arrest everybody. And Kat says, No, wait, I'm with the Black Knight. I don't think a single soldier is going to say, Ah, yes, young Callahan girl, you're right. I, I believe you. Let me go fetch the commander of all of the armies. I, I, She'll spend the night in custody until scribe, until the paperwork reaches Scribe, and Scribe informs Black.
0: You got the right answer, but your work is wrong. Scribe is the answer, but she would get back. The soldier, or she would get accosted. The soldier would come up to her and say, what's all this then? Catherine would say, uh, 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 ask Black. And then the soldier would take off their face, and it would actually be Scribe. Scribe would not be unaware. Oh.
1: I, <laughs> that's certainly a possibility, I suppose.
0: I don't think anyone in the story might be assassin, but actually anyone in the story might be scribe. Even assassin might be scribe at this point. I'm kidding.
1: Yeah, let's not get carried away here.
0: You must admit, it has a whiff of truth to it.
1: Speaking of whiffs, uh, after talking about the spending the night in Legion custody, Chider throws some insults towards Cat and Internally, she says, "What was it with goblins and insulting me? Did I smell in a way that pissed them off?" Cat, I know that Sacker insulted you, but you also insulted Sacker, that y'all met and immediately kind of just started in on each other. And also, you mocked Sacker after she had half of her face blown off. You internally mocked her for being slow after having half of her face torn off. I'm, we had just talked about, cat. cat's uh, not racist. I don't know about this. She's got some weird thing where every time a goblin does something, it's the goblin's fault.
0: She doesn't really understand racism on human terms.
1: So there's that, at least. Instead, it's just, goblins are slow and hate me, and orcs are 90% teeth and muscle.
0: Why don't you keep an eye out for when she meets Hakram? See how long it takes for, him, for her to drop a, he's one of the good ones. <laughs>
1: All right, I, we'll, we'll keep our, our eyes peeled for
0: that. Assuming one of those beastial goblins doesn't peel our eyes first.
1: Goblins are famously eye peelers.
0: Catherine would agree. True. So, speaking of really just all of that, nothing particular, don't worry about it. Tamika, in introducing what they're doing here, says that the goblin wants to have a meeting before we dance the dance. And this is another piece of that, what do these three know? How are they acquainted with? The story process. What does she mean dance the dance? That's a remarkably casual way to refer to a legendary half unknown, more than half unknown, once in a lifetime claim process most people never experience any piece of. The goblin wants to have a meeting before we dance the dance. You all understand the way acquiring your name works. (laughs) People without a name.
1: I mean, sure. I think squire compared to many names and in the same realm as say apprentice or even heiress maybe these are transition-based names that all specifically have someone ahead of them a mentor a teacher a role to step into that sort of thing so even if they're not speaking with black mr name Lore himself they probably have somebody tamika is sunika she probably has a great education i'm she you know her family taught her or something i'm no problem chider knowing is definitely interesting i really like chider is the really interesting one to me Rashid knowing again very likely there's some mentor there i i'm just so curious what how chider entered into this story because you have to be moving towards become squire. i think to be the squire otherwise that that is just not how names work. You don't just suddenly wake up as the squire, unless you were stabbed the night before, I suppose. So I, I'm I'm definitely very curious about Chider and how Chider knows that there needs to that there should be a meeting before something happens. So she knows that something is going to happen. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting for sure.
0: I agree that she's the most interesting one, but unfortunately also the most hand wavable in Well, you know, the matrons have plans. Fair. I want to know what those plans are. Another interesting thing about this group of Squire candidates is they're all villainous. And I recognize that Catherine is on the path to a villainous Squire, uh, an apprentice to the Black Knight. But Squire is not necessarily the name of a villain. Isn't Arthur, my dear darling Arthur, a Squire for a while? Is it already fatalistically determined that this Squire is a naughty Squire? Or what's up with that? I'm curious. It's perhaps an implication that that's how it works.
1: I think there's an actually a very simple, once I, once I say it, and reasonable explanation there. Uh, a very practical one, rather. Squire is going to become some manner of knight. Uh, I, I, I'm not an expert. I'm not EE. E. I don't know all of the possible names, obviously. But that, that feels right, right? That squire is going to become a knight?
0: Barring incident, every yeah. Squire we see becomes a knight. Or I guess we might hear of a Squire who dies as Squire, but still. Well, oh, Cat doesn't actually become a knight, but um, anyway. Cat isn't Squire by the time she... Is Cat Squire when she reaches towards Black Queen, actually? No.
1: She... The transition there is a little muddy, I think. Regardless, Cat uh, is... The exception to like every rule she's black's apprentice and all that i think the important thing to note here is i think knightly names are going to lean halloween obviously uh obviously proser has some knightly names as well but hallow is big on knights they've got night nightly orders and knights are a huge part of their mythology and ah. black kind of wiped all of those out or at least drove them deep 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 underground in this entire region of the world the only knightly named around is black and he's actively searching for a squire i don't think white knight is active yet i feel like he's very new when he shows up and he doesn't show up for a bit and i don't know mirror knight maybe is active but he's not looking for a squire that that's not what the mirror knight is. It's uh, not
0: exactly a knight in the same sense, I think. Knight.
1: Right. 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 I mean that when I say that's not exactly what the mirror knight is, I mean both the mantle and the man. And there's I mean there's a couple other knightly names that show up. Um if I recall correctly, there's a red knight or something like it that I probably doesn't exist yet or doesn't currently have a wearer yet. The mantle doesn't. So I think it's just as simple as the only knight looking for a squire right now is black, and he's not going to attract a heroic squire.
0: Though, I must point out, it doesn't seem like squire must become attached to a knight, because Arthur is only attached to a knight. He links up with the Order of Broken Bells, which I recognize doesn't exist. Your term still stands strong. But it's not that black is the only knight in need of a squire, but also the only knight in need of a squire.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that the named side of it is important because if I had to guess, and this is pure conjecture that I feel pretty comfortable with, if there is a squire that's going to rise, creation will probably lean towards the the person being squired to a capital K knight rather than, you know, Sir Devon who, struggles to pay for his horse and is part of a knightly order. It just seems like there's going to be a waiting towards the people who are really shifting things to get the squire first.
0: So in summary, and in order to capture our classic literature crowd, we can say that it is a truth universally acknowledged that a squire in possession of a name must be in want of a knight.
1: I think you hit the nail on the head. So shortly after this, we have Rashid mention black but he says to cat you came here with the carrion lord and i think i i looked back and i couldn't see anything i think this is the first time he gets referred to as the carrion lord in the text which is interesting because it, it's a big title for him you know it gets used all the time through the whole series it's not his name but it's it's an important title and Kat comments on it, of course, because she's a hypocrite. But I don't know. It's it's fun to notice the first time we see details like that arise in the text.
0: Every time Kat hears one of these titles for the first time, she always has to react over the top. She's like, ugh, why do these named people have to carry on like that? <laughs> oh,
1: anyway, uh, let's see. What's the next thing we should talk about here? Chider, uh, shortly after this, says spilling each other's blood will only weaken the empire the goblin said this is a better way this here meaning racing to kill the hero and i it's interesting to me that's patriotism towards the empire from anyone feels odd but especially from a goblin who are loosely imperial at best is this feigned patriotism and loyalty and if so, what for what purpose is it real? And if so, does this explain Chider's ascension towards wirehood, if that's a term that I'm going to use and I think it is?
0: If I may be deeply racist, you must remember that goblins are sneaky tricksters who have only their selfish interests at heart. And I don't think they would deny this. I don't think they would believably deny this. I think they might- There you go openly crossing their fingers and winking deny it. But... Right. Chider may also be... Chider is a goblin out in the world, which means Chider is likely with the blessings or awareness of the matrons doing this. Unusual coloration might be another line of... another sign of lineage or particular importance. There will be one red goblin born every 15 years and from her will come... blah blah blah. But... Mm -hmm. I have little doubt the goblins at least have certain secrets of name lore that they've picked up over the years and that they might try to ply. Chider might be attempting to build a story, clay patriotism, in order to better suit the Black Knight than any of these other candidates. After all, if the goblins can hitch their star to the Black Knight, if they can get further into bed with him than they already have, relative to their previous situations. Their continued rise in the Empire is all but certain. It could all be a big plan. And then on the other hand, praisey patriotism isn't necessarily some sort of proud-to-be-an-American, bleed-for-my-country kind of thing. Precy-patriotism is a, an openly selfish take-what-you-can-get that justifies your own action in, well, as Rashid then puts it, spilling the blood of the weak can only strengthen the tower. I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm virtuous for it. Which I realize you can argue about American imperialism or what have you, but here it's an individual selfishness.
1: It is, and I do want to take a moment to note the response to Rashid's comment from Kat is, that's a funny thing to say considering you're the one who's bled most. Cat, Kat's just coming in... She's just coming in with fire in this in this discussion, but I, I hear what you're saying, and I understand that uh, basically Pracy loyalty is a little different, or patriotism is a little different. But the concern, the thing that that Chider says isn't spilling each other's blood is bad. Is Chider doesn't say that spilling each other's blood is wrong or anything like that, but that it will weaken the empire specifically wanting to keep the empire strong. I, I don't know that that feels like a more specific goal than just generally. I love the place I live. Perhaps. Perhaps we get a bit more, we get a bit of something interesting for, um, from the Hagrebi mythology, I guess. I'm not sure. Um, Rashid gives his name and isn't too happy about doing so. And follows it up by saying, remember it, for when the devils ask you, who sent you to the other place, capitalized. We get a mention of devils for, I think, the first time. We get the mention of the other place. And I don't know if that's just referring to the general hells where devils are, if it, if there's some kind of unified understanding here, or if it's a specific Tagrebi understanding of an afterlife. I don't know. It's It's... Just something that I, I noticed, and I don't recall it coming up again. Uh, just a little, a little drop of setting here for us to to enjoy.
0: Or a setting with certainty about the gods and eventual awareness of previous realities. There's remarkably little on any afterlife, any beliefs, any customs in the entire work. We get bits and pieces like this, but you know from a from my american viewpoint from a culture dominated by christian soteriology to me this seems like remarkable this interest remarkable lack even of soteriological conversation preoccupationology even
1: there are real world cultures and religions that don't really concern themselves with what happens after death? obviously,
0: absolutely. You notice I didn't say judeo Christian
1: right, yeah, exactly, and there are i mean it's and there are even some very large religions that do concern themselves with what's after death, but it's not an afterlife. Uh, reincarnation is a not an uncommon belief in the world. um so there is that side of things I think i'm I'm thinking through there are two cultures that I can think of easily here. Yeah, there are two cultures in this story that have any kind of afterlife that's a big deal, um, and one, and while they're similar in the abstract, they're very different in practice. The drow, with the way that your secrets carry on after your death, I think is a sort of afterlife. I don't know that they conceive of it that way, but I think if you were to look at it from the outside as we are, I can see that. Being a type of afterlife, if you squint. Um, but the biggest one is the the Dwarath, their Gestalt thing that they've got going on. I don't know that they call it an afterlife necessarily, but it it's the place where their dead exist to do a specific thing. In this case, empowering the living. It's a bit of a mess in my mind. Because uh, there was a lot going on when that the tidbits about the gestalt were being sprinkled throughout the story, it wasn't at the forefront of the most important things happening at the time. Um, but somehow, <laughs> somehow, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it. I think afterlives just aren't a concern. I mean, we get uh, ogres have an at death thing that. F- isn't afterlife directly, but it, it's related at least. Um, but past that, I, I really can't think of much.
0: Is that ogres in particular or just good servants of Below?
1: Well, I, I think it's pitched as good servants of Below, but ogres have a special place there because they are—they do tend to be better servants and they're more aware of how to do the quote unquote right things at the end of their life to to follow through on that.
0: Oh, it's universally available, but really only accessed by ogres and good dads. Good, good enough dads. dads.
1: Yeah, dads. That, that sounds right to me. Um, We'll just need to... Best dads. We'll just need to pay close attention during that scene, or those scenes, rather.
0: I will cry on air. Great. Assuming we're on air that much further from now. But, you know, perhaps we have... Perhaps we can find an escape clause. This is my transition to the next point, where Tamika lays down the terms. Hey, let's all go kill the hero before we kill each other. And then when she proceeds to define the specifics of those terms, this truce would extend no further than the death of our common enemy. Yes? Catherine's reaction is, I wasn't exactly happy that the dark-skinned girl was looking for an escape clause before she'd even agreed to the terms. I'm, I'm sorry, that's ungenerous? Catherine is not being a charitable interlocutor here. Tamika's defining when they return to killing each other, when they're making the deal of, let's not kill each other until something happens. I, I really think that th- this is reasonable. So far as, hey, let's kill each other is a reasonable thing. In real life, there are relatively few situations where I'd agree to that. Like, maybe if there was the last flat screen TV on Black Friday. but oh, beyond Right, that, of course. For our non-American listeners, that's one of the holiest days of the capitalist calendar.
1: Yeah, Kat doesn't seem to understand how negotiations work. You set the bounds in which the negotiations happen. You set your terms, and then you abide by them until they it no longer applies. This is a this is a contract with an end date. That's not an escape clause. That's not being tricky. It's just ending a contract. <laughs> I, I I I don't know. It, this is just. It's a very cat thing to be upset about because it borders on being hypocritical. I guess not hypocritical. It borders on—I don't know. I don't know. On what the term being is.
0: rational. Yeah, which Catherine I, has always set herself against.
1: True, it borders on being rational. <laughs> the agreement to these terms is followed by Tamika saying, "I accept those terms. May the gods devour whoever breaks them." And I'm sure there's some ritual component that that's just the thing you say sort of the American equivalent of I swear to God or what have you. But it's such a specific and vivid image of a punishment. Not the gods are smiting or punishing or striking down. May the gods devour whoever breaks them. We were talking about an afterlife. That's a pretty rough one.
0: Meanwhile, Chider's just sitting there like, well, yeah, Gobbler's going to gobble.
1: Gobbler's going to gobble. After the agreement is struck, Rashid heads out since he's the angry loner of the bunch and we get we get cat doing the thing she says no. in her internal line internal monologue here my fingers clenched i've been we've been waiting and here it is it's not a hand clenching it's not grasping something it's not flexing her fingers are clenched i think this is truly the first chapter of a practical guide we've reached it we're good to go for the rest now
0: Add one to the clench counter. If we start this now, we can actually keep up the entire podcast. Yeah, I'm adding one to the clench counter.
1: You do realize that now the clench counter, whenever it gets updated, has to go into the show notes, right? Yes. All right.
0: So now that Catherine has begun to become who she will be, she then, in her perpetual self-delusion, believes herself to be that which she has not yet become, though she will. Her fingers clench because she's clenching her sword because she's considering... Going and stabbing Rashid some more, and she thinks I'd already killed people. For, I'd already killed people for lesser reasons than the one he'd given me. After all, am I miscounting, or has Catherine killed two people, not counting a name? Dream for the crime of attempted sexual assault. Like I'm, I'm not here to weigh sexual assault against murder or what have you. Two things can be bad, but Catherine isn't a seasoned killer. Certainly not a. Casual killer, but she's considering herself to be? Calm down, girl. I'm sorry, but breathe.
1: It is a weird line. It is, <laughs> I'd kill people for lesser reasons. That that feels like the kind of thing, yeah, that shows up at the end of the story uh, after witnessing this morally gray anti-hero make their way through the the dark, gritty underbelly. Kat, yeah, you you've been... A protagonist, a main character—you've been a, a an adventurer, whatever, for a couple of weeks—and you started off by basically being given permission by one of the highest authorities to execute a person for attempted and previous previously actually enacted sexual assault. You're, <laughs> what is this? Is this? Is she hyping herself up? Is she justifying what she? I, I don't know. It is. It is. It's one of those. Uh, we talk about this with named things a lot where Kat severely underestimates and severely overestimates what a role can do, what a person can do. She's weirdly overestimating her own history, I guess, in this moment. It's 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 a weird one for her. She's such I think generally what I'm saying is Kat's a weirdo and we love her for it.
0: Honestly, I think generally speaking, Catherine doesn't base her actions or thoughts on fact. She more generally is a vibe-based human being, which is why she does so well in a world based on stories. But it's also tragic to watch.
1: Or, I don't know, hyping herself up or whatever this is. She starts to head out or thinks about heading out when she's warned back by Tamika not to hunt down Rashid because, as Chider says, he's still protected by Guess Right until dawn comes. And that's interesting to me because Rashid specifically left the hearth. I'm using the term hearth because that is often tied to guest rights and real life examples. He left the fire. He left the company. He's not there. He's not associated with them anymore. They're, these guest rights here extend past being a literal guest. It's a set chunk of time. It's a set... Maybe not chunk of time, a set unit of time. It's the night. And it's, I don't know. I wasn't expecting that from guest rights. He doesn't have to be a guest. He just has to have been for it to count.
0: No, it tells you a little bit about the history of these guest rites or the level of regard with which they have been kept and ritualized. Because you know what? A protection that only extends around the fire is useless, because the second you step away, arrow in your back, boom. And it says something of the, I don't know, cultural or individual considerations of the inventors of these guest rights that they decided to go with, and it shall last until dawn, rather than, yeah, you got an hour, get back to wherever you're going, otherwise, I'm still gonna kill you. No, you have until dawn, a nice, dramatic, it's a story-based world, you know what, that goes... I'm not surprised.
1: And, you know, thinking about it, uh, putting a little more thought into it, as you were saying the, the cultural side of things. So the Tagrebi are based at least loosely, or maybe they just share some similarities with the real life Bedouin people. And just generally being a desert culture, you expect a pretty high level of either, um, nomadism or, um, uh, or what's the term pastoralism. And, being mobile and having households be mobile and what could be considered the hearth be mobile it makes sense you come across somebody in the night and offer them guest rights and then you move on it doesn't leave them out if if you have a fire and are traveling by night because you're in the desert having it last till dawn when people are it gives people time to travel i, I don't know it, it makes sense when you think about it in terms of the place that you're inviting a guest into isn't a physical space but a company space a a conversational space a familial space
0: i do think it's a masterful choice to give this guest right cultural element to a to a people from an extreme environment because you because while you see guest rituals and value in being kind to the alien and what have you all over the world, there's certainly not many places where you're going to find the ancient reaction to a stranger was supposed to be, ah yes, we will leave them in the cold with no food, for that is how we treat someone. No. Everywhere there is a degree of hospitality in the culture. But in places with extreme environments, that's absolutely vital because the environment will kill you if you don't have shelter at all. And there's always, in all cultures, an element of do unto others. But in Norse culture, in this, for lack of certainty, desert folk-inspired culture, uh, if you look at the Hebrew scriptures that deal with another extreme environment, the obsession they have with caring for the alien, it's a very good choice on E.E.'s part, rather than handing a fascination with guest right to Callowins, who are from a fertile land with relatively, as I recall and perceive it, relatively mild climate. I suspect among the uh, Lycanese, you'll see a similar level of care, though tempered with an extreme degree of cold consideration to practical needs, because the Lycanese are metal.
1: What you're saying is the people in the guide in Kalernia who are most likely to have Ritualized and very adhered to guest rights are the ratlings and the denizens of the crown of the dead.
0: I mean, also the drow, there's not too much in those caves.
1: Uh, I would be surprised if the drow had guest rights that they actually adhered to. Not like a, ah, these dirty drow are all evil, but it just it doesn't vibe.
0: But they canonically do. The local mighty has a right to any of the guests.
1: Okay, that's fair enough.
0: I'm deeply proud of that. Please, take the next point, whatever it is.
1: Of course. Um, Kat has a, a line coming up here where she says, she, referring to Chider, would think twice about using munitions if the both of us were in range. And I think the takeaway from that sentence is, Kat has never fought a goblin before. They're not, I don't feel like there's a single goblin we meet who would be concerned about collateral damage, even if the collateral were themselves.
0: A goblin isn't looking to throw away its life. Its life is just a near immaterial consideration for much of its enthusiasm. I guess the, it,
1: it is tempered a bit by this being Chider, a, a female goblin. They they can expect a slightly longer life and are maybe a little less frivolous in spending theirs, but still. Come on, cat. Um, not particularly important, I just thought that was a, a funny line, but uh, relating to weapons, the next sentence after that is... Uh, Kat's looking at the equipment. She's talking about the munitions that Chider has. And then she's looking at uh, Tamika, and she says that uh, Tamika gives her pause. Spears weren't a weapon that saw much use outside of the free cities. She talked about Tamika looking like she's familiar with the weapon and that it's dangerous. And that's that's odd. Um, In history, real-life history, until the World Wars... Percentage of people who have wielded a specific weapon, the spear kind of outclasses every weapon in history and possibly even including up through the First World War. I don't remember when the actual cutoff happens as far as the estimation goes. But if you have a human with a weapon prior to whatever the year is, 1900, if you have a human with a weapon, odds are statistically it was a spear. And in Calernia, they're not used outside of. The free cities, which obviously they were pretty heavily used in the free cities. We've got like the the famous phalanx, and uh, you've got lances for the um uh, I don't remember what they're actually called, but the equivalent of the cataphracts, uh, which are you know a type of spear. So it's Calernia is not spear based, which odd as far as the comparison. And also, just thinking through it, spears are one of the cheaper weapons to make for their effectiveness and also pretty much the most effective weapon you can have prior to firearms uh, so i wonder if this is the influence of needing a story and real life has this and so i'm sure Cloney does too where there's something more noble and glorious about a sword or an axe or something exotic like i uh, use two knives or a crossbow whatever it is and Thus, people are more likely to emulate that because there's actual power in that kind of glory. If you get enough of it, if you're famous enough, and you end up with a mantle, it's just it's interesting that most of the world not only it's not even just that spears aren't the most common, but they don't even see that much use. Even for uh uh the the uh, sorry, even for price, their legions are modeled after Rome. Rome's legionaries, despite in popular conception, being swordspeople, Rome's legionaries being swordsmen, praise being swordspeople, for most of Roman history, they were spear users to some extent or other. Not in Clurnia, I, I guess.
0: I can offer an in-universe theory for the proliferation of swords. Sure. Where do weapons come from? Or at least, what's the largest source of weapons we know of?
1: In this part of the world? I i mean, Callow makes their On own... On the continent. I, oh, okay. I, the dwarves?
0: I presume the dwarves have a lot of metal. But you know what the dwarves probably don't have much access to?
1: Fair, actually. Good point.
0: The answer for any reader who didn't follow, but I expect you all do, because I have a very high opinion of every single one of you, especially our dear patrons, would. They, they 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 don't have trees, I think. Probably. We don't know much about them. But most trees grow above ground historically in the real world, I think.
1: I guess that that's a fair point. The the dwarves are mass are the masters of mass producing weapons. I mean that's referred to last chapter or two chapters ago when Kat's given her, maybe a little more than that, when Kat's given her sword by Black. Um, but is that
0: true for Callo? Does Callo get their weaponry from the dwarves? I, I think I recall in the failed Kaloan revolution coming up, there being actual dwarven soldiery on the field at one point.
1: I have no recollection of that, so I look forward to reading about it.
0: If I am wrong, dear readers, please help me gaslight my co-host.
1: Yep, ple- please help him do that.
0: Bet you didn't anticipate this move.
1: I may not have, but according to Cat, Black Knight probably did. Uh, uh, after the discussion with the other claimants dies down, Cat heads back to meet up with Black, and there's another... She She again thinks about Scribe being aware of her needs before she knew about them, and she says... Every move I'd made so far, the Black Knight had anticipated, approved of, even. Kat talks about not trusting him, liking him, but not trusting him. And I'm I'm wondering, he's doing a great job of predicting her, obviously, and so ascribe. Scribe. Black is excellent at predicting named, because he's got that expertise, because that's what he's based all of his success on. And he's very, very good at predicting non-named, as long as those non-named are soldiers i guess because he's got a skill set for that as a a general he's got a name that's about leading soldiers and he's got a specific aspect about leading soldiers he knows how to understand armies cat is very new to her mantle and in fact doesn't even fully have it yet i'm wondering if that makes her easier to predict for black and that's why every step of this has been seen by him she's too weak to be able to fight against the flow of fate or whatever poetic way you want to describe this or is she harder to predict because she's so early on in her story that the branching paths could go in any number of directions that she's there's nothing nailed down yet I don't know it's not a thing directly related to what's going on in the story at this point I'm just I was just thinking through how black does things he's not the bard where he's manipulating stories as directly where Kat's current position would see her less vulnerable to the Bard. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious what your thoughts are and how, how Black is interacting with Kat's burgeoning name.
0: Honestly, I think in addition to his other skills, because let's face it, all else being equal, Black will still be an extremely adept prognosticator. But not to diminish their respective geniuses, in a lot of ways, Black and Catherine share one single brain cell. It bounces between father and child, but as we see at the end of this chapter, he picked her because of the indignation that only those two can understand. Only they, in all the world, understand how unjust things are, and only they know how to fix it. And that single-mindedness, frankly, sometimes to the point of foolishness, even in the master planner Black. How do we know what Catherine will do? Well, she tells us. How does she know what Black will do? Because she thinks what would I do so how can black know what Catherine would do he thinks what would I do it's genetic I don't mean to keep belaboring this point but like soon enough to be father like soon enough to be daughter
1: enough I don't I don't know that uh, I don't know that I can argue with that that's that's reasonable um, and it sounds like a joke but really <laughs> no. I mean actually which is a fun step to uh, a comment that Kat makes coming up here uh, that is much less like Black and much more like another character we all know and love in Cordelia. Kat says, in Thinking About Black, there's no place for a man like him in the kind of callow I want to make. And when I read that line, the first thing that came to my mind was, I want a world where it is a given the Black Knight will hang. It's... Aww... Cat and Black are the same person, but also Cat and Cordelia really do share a lot of the same vibe. A lot of times, Cat is extremely Callowin, but I guess all I'm saying is if she had been born a little more to the northwest, she also would have fit in pretty well.
0: And see, this is why Cat and Cordelia are totally endgame. I don't mean that as I would like them to get together at the end. I mean they do get together in the end which is really cute, actually. We're the only... This is not for this chapter, but I'm going to put it in anyway. There's seriously a reason why, for so much of that final crusade, Cat and Cordelia are the only people who can understand what the other is going through. Despite the gulf between named and mundane, despite the gulf between their various allegiances and needs, despite the gulf between their habits, between their training, Between their methods, even the gulf between the goals necessitated by their allegiances and nuance of their ends, very few people, even in their positions, would be able to understand the other like they do. Also, I'm in love with Hasenbach.
1: Yeah. (laughs) If anybody's not aware at this point, then they're really, they just really haven't been listening to you talk.
0: Ordelia did nothing wrong.
1: Well, let's not get carried away. So, Kat. After uh, after mentioning that she wants to hang the Black Knight, which I promises in the text, you don't need to look it up, I'm a trustworthy source, she's talking a little bit about his plans, his scheming, and she says, There was an angle at play I wasn't seeing, and until I caught it, I had to assume that every action I took he approved of furthered his plans as well as mine. Honestly, yes, that's true, but also... I. I've mentioned this a couple of times now, and I I stand by my read on this situation, and I don't think it's a particularly divisive one. I really think this might be one of Black's least convoluted schemes that we see, one of his least complicated and nuanced plans. He wants a capable apprentice. He wants his squire to be effective and powerful and useful. He explicitly says this at one point, and... While him saying I'm not gonna lie to you, Cat, which he does at some point soon, I think, isn't necessarily proof that he won't. He has no reason to. His motivation is to have a useful apprentice, not one who hates him. There's a lot of things going on here. What he means by useful is a nuanced thing. Sure, there's politics at play for where he can wield her in praise. But in this instance, where Cat's looking for this deeper level, where he's trying to manipulate her cat he just wants you to be good at being a squire and to be pr- practically useful for him uh, there's there's not that much else i don't think
0: absolutely not but catherine doesn't seem to understand even now even despite her weirdly wide-ranging idea of what name powers can possibly be how important named can possibly be she doesn't seem to understand the value of having a name more or less in hand. A good apprentice, a good named apprentice, is enormous and is a tool that can accomplish all sorts of ends. And Catherine, as she goes on to show in this very same paragraph, doesn't understand what a name is in itself. She talks about how she needs to build a power base of her own. And to do that, she needs to have command in the legions of terror. And Ideally, she needs to have a legion under her command because only by having a legion can she accomplish anything. And a valuable thing about EE's work is the mundane always matter. Abigail of Summerholm is not a named person, but gods know she is one of the reasons the war is won. I'm not going to bring up my beloved Cordelia here because she's a really special unnamed person, but Abigail, from the first to the last, is no one. Except who she is. But despite that, names are still a big deal. The warlock can fell an army. The witch of the woods can move mountain. The dead king is, is the dead king, but he's also special. The tyrant brought the free cities to heal, not just by the might of his armies, but by the might of being tyrant. Let's not get started on the hierarch. Catherine doesn't understand that a good apprentice is so valuable to Black because it's just an apprentice because Catherine doesn't understand that named is valuable for more than getting command of a legion. Names are huge. They are diegetically and IRL what the story is about.
1: Especially in praise. I I get the feeling that Callowin names are Callowan's first and named second. You have powerful knights that support the crown and sure the ruler is also named. But in praise, named being named gives you a huge political position that you wouldn't otherwise have. And that's probably more valuable in terms of what Kat's trying to do than having 5,000 legionaries who follow her orders. Side note, how long did we agree we have to wait before this becomes a Hierarch fan cast? in actuality? Does he have to be on screen before
0: we can do that? We should take a vote.
1: Perfect. at Talks about wanting this independent command uh, the next paragraph, she says, which means that at some point I'll either have to kill him, Black Knight, or become trusted enough to be given an independent command. Hey, Kat, would you believe that you manage both and not in the order that you'd expect, necessarily?
0: And good for her. Kind and of.
1: good for her. Well, <laughs> good for colernia bad for her.
0: Then she hesitates about the idea of killing him. Because there's no guarantee that whoever replaced him would be as dot, 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 even-minded. And first of all, he's not replaced after being killed. He's replaced well before being killed. But secondly, she's absolutely right, knowing the kind of monsters praise produces. But thanks to Allie holding the throne, you know, Marshal Nim ain't bad. Nim is a solid Black Knight. Not Amadeus by any means, but that ogre gets things done. That's a very good right hand.
1: I was going to disagree about being even-minded, but I guess Nim is the character, the Black Knight that famously is so even-minded that she holds back on doing her duty so that she can, if I recall correctly, fall in love with and elope with the knight errant. That's how those two solve their differences, right?
0: I'm trying to think if there were any complications in that, but sounds about right to me.
1: I guess what we're saying is we love Nim.
0: Podcast guys talking to Gratta, Cordelia Hasenbach, Marshal Nim, the Hierarch, <laughs> and our Lord and Savior Cairo Theodosian. I'm sorry, that was very rude. Our Lord and Doom, Kyros Theodosian.
1: Much better. Speaking of Doom, Kat is Cat um, is talking about what we just sort of mentioned, needing to get an independent command, and she comes up with an issue. She says. Her, one of her problems is that the Empire is at peace. People get promoted when their predecessors retired or died from mundane causes. But, and I quote here, My best chance at a position of real power was being granted soldiers to deal with a problem. She's looking for, she knows that what she needs isn't to slowly work her way up the chain of command and have soldiers under her command at some point. It's find a problem that she can solve and being given resources to solve that problem in the form of soldiers and she's had a number of schemes she's had a number of plans come and go over the last couple of chapters this is the the seed for what she actually does for one of her early pivots i guess one of their her early big decisions that drastically alters her career so it, it's fun to see this little smidge of foreshadowing this thing that we can look back to as the moment maybe where that plan sort of coalesced into what she follows through on
0: but she's not hopeful she needs to be granted soldiers to deal with the problem and she says none seem to be in the cards right now and even thinking that alone she manifests it this is how stories work she is a squire in need of a problem it will come it must come i honestly believe that if Cat were not rising as a squire. If there weren't a story of a squire rising, maybe even a squire who wasn't cat, but so long as there wasn't a squire going in, right now the stasis is holding. I don't think that William would have been set on his path in any effective way. I don't think the Fey incursions would have happened because they're nothing but story. I think Catherine is to blame for everything bad that happens in Callow from now on.
1: I can get behind that. Also, none seem to be in the cards right now. Hey Kat, it's been a couple of hours since you found out there's a hero leading some sort of rebellion here. Did you forget about that? Give her a
0: moment to put it together. She's been through a lot today. She got blown up. <laughs> okay.
1: She got blown up. She had to fight a guy with a scimitar. She got nervous because somebody had a spear and nobody else in the world has one, apparently. Fair enough. She's had a busy day.
0: And she's clearly not thinking straight. Uh as she walks back towards camp, she considers the people she just met with, and says that the walk back to camp was a quick walk, and now that I wasn't stuck in a tense standoff with people who might or might not want to kill me, I was beginning to feel tired from the night's events. She's exhausted, so exhausted that she called her rivals for the mantle of name with whom she has explicitly agreed to put off killing each other before they continue killing each other, People who might or might not want to kill me. They want to kill her. This is established. That is the baseline expectation of their relationship. She's not thinking straight.
1: The fact that they're not actively killing each other is because there is a hero in the city that they're in.
0: And speaking of not thinking straight, would you kind of introduce... uh...
1: It's... I'm so excited. She's here. It's only what... uh... 10 chapters in, and she's here already. I've forgotten how early she shows up, and it's fantastic. Eris is here. She's strikingly beautiful. She's aristocratic and beautiful. And did I mention how attractive she was? Because I really think that's important here. But she's here, and we get to talk about her, and we get to see her show up in a number of scenes as a kind of outside character, a, a tertiary character for a while. It's not clear how important she'll be for some time, but her first introduction is trying to convince Black that she would be a better squire than cat, trying to supplant cat in a political way in a in a hierarchy way rather than, oh, I don't know, physically controlling cat's body to fight a bunch of heroes or something.
0: What a weird example i sometimes
1: you just got to make something up because you started a sentence and you don't know where it's going to end.
0: You touched on this. But I have to point out Kat's incredible, all-encompassing, and fundamentally motivating horniness that truly, in its—well, pure doesn't feel like the right word—but essential form reveals itself in its fullness here. The first sentence describing this Saninke girl is, She was, I noticed, strikingly beautiful. In the second sentence— Catherine notes, her skin was smooth and flawless. In the third sentence, she comments on her high aristocratic cheekbone and elegantly styled eyebrows. In the fourth sentence, she looks at her clothing and notices that it is perfectly tailored to fit an hourglass figure I could only envy. And then the fifth sentence in its entirety, with those long legs and eye-catching curves, she was a serious contender for the most stunning girl I'd ever seen. If I didn't know better, I would think this would be the introduction of the romantic interest of the love story. And knowing better, I know that this is the introduction of the romantic interest of the love story. Catherine is a mess, and I love it.
1: The best part is, at this point in the story, if you are reading this for the first time, Kat has been
0: eh,
1: a teenager. She's not been like exceptionally cat-like to use a polite term but she notices attractive people maybe talks about a couple of things but this paragraph about the heiress we you could get the impression that it's so focused on here because the heiress is special and that that's a huge part of her character and it is she's a big part of not maybe not her character but a big part of what we know about her for a long time and a big part of how she does things is that she's stunningly attractive but really on a second read-through, this is just a drop, just a taste of the kind of person that Cat is and becomes. And this is just a a little, just a, a little taste of, of the kind, of just, oh man. Cat, you need to rein it in just a little bit, take a deep breath, eat a raw potato, take a cold shower, All just easy.
0: She's not into cold showers yet, that's later on. The fairy stuff. Oh, you're right.
1: Take a really hot, rage-filled, grudge-based Halloween shower.
0: That is how they do it, probably.
1: (laughs) Boiling water.
0: (laughs) I do think it's quite possible that Eris is the first person Catherine has laid eyes upon who is of a similar age from one of the High Seat bloodlines. She's seen Mazus, who's from one of the flourishes of a High Seat, but he was old, relatively speaking. Eris is, canonically, super attractive. She further cultivates that because that's the role she is playing, lowercase r, and it becomes the role she plays, capital R. But she's just got hot blood, canonically in this world. You just got hot, hot bloodline, and this might be Catherine's first exposure to that as well, which means she's getting a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight hundred ordinary punches. She never stood a chance.
1: Eris, yeah, Eris's introduction is something special, and is really uh, is like you said, set up to be the romantic interest. It's interesting that, if I recall correctly, canonically the. So it can be ranked. I guess the most attractive person that Cat ever meets is the Empress, the Dread Empress. But no contest. But Eris feels special. still. <laughs> and I think you're right that it's just the she's the first of the breed of person, um, which I think is important. There's a almost a throwaway line next chapter that I want to mention when we get there and call back to this that I, I think relates in an interesting way. So. Uh, this is me saying it out loud to hopefully remember when we're discussing that next week.
0: Ah, Tune in next week, faithful listeners.
1: After spending a paragraph talking about how hot Eris is, she, Kat, here, talks about Eris as in the name, the, the role. She thinks Eris and says, I could feel the capitalized letter on the tip of my tongue, similar to how Kat smells magic or feels power that kind of thing she's feeling a letter the you know the grammatical structure here on the tip of her tongue i talked at length about how i like that kind of thing in this story how cat has such a weird way of interacting with power it's just I, I i like finding examples of it like this one it's such a mundane way of experiencing the non-mundane the the metaphysical the the supernatural which feels like a stretch given how this all works but it, it's such a mundane way of experiencing this. And I I just, I really appreciate that. It really gives it some texture. gives the setting, gives the world building some texture in a really interesting way. And I, I just really appreciate it.
0: What are you saying that? And I think it's great to see it continuing to play out a steady beat of physicality. I look forward to watching it as we continue. What I also look forward to watching as we continue is the development of not only Catherine, because Eris appears now similar to how she always will be. She is beautiful, she is conniving, she is controlled. Well, she's quite controlled. But when Black defends Catherine's viability, or even declines to agree with dispersions cast on Catherine's viability as a squire, Eris replies, I have looked into her lord. She's a nobody. A lore orphan with a reputation as a brawler and nothing else to her name. There are thousands like her all over Callow, she replied, a hint of frustration creeping into her voice. That lack of control. She is a baby. She has, she let emotion out. This wasn't even a, I saw a momentary shadow cross her face before she stilled it into a, placid mask of nothingness. No, she had emotion in her voice. Who is this girl?
1: Now, the cynic in me wants to say, ah, of course she's letting frustration into her voice. It humanizes her. It makes her less of a, it distances her from the nobility that Black is known to despise. But yeah, she's still learning.
0: If you had any doubt, later on we actually do have a moment of more of the same. Black replies to her that they trained her well, just enough insolence to pique my interest, self-confident, without stretching into the arrogance I so dislike in you nobles. Aeris's eyes widened for a heartbeat, and then her face went pretty blank. If this is a strategy, it's a bad one. So either she's out of character in having bad strategy in her false revelations of her internal emotional reality, or I think much more likely, she has visible feeling. That she didn't elect to share. And it's precious. It's
1: precious and a little disconcerting. To see a socially. Oh pardon. Thank you. Okay. (laughs) It's precious and a little disconcerting. To see a socially imperfect heiress. I've read. What 70 million words of this story. Approximately. And
0: 75.
1: 75 million words. And it's. It's wrong that she's not perfect in social situations. Like, what is this? Like you said, they're babies. You also mentioned that uh, Black refuses to agree with the aspersions cast by uh, Eris. However, he does land probably the cruelest and most, I don't know, cringe inducing for Catherine comment in this conversation when there's a hesitation and he says, Catherine shows promise in other ways. That's just brutal, Black. Like, he knows Cat's there, right? He's got named senses. He's got his sharpened hearing and all of that. And he says Cat shows promise in other ways. After the the line about Eris being inarguably smarter, have co- having combat experience. Oh boy, that is rough.
0: And in response... Catherine makes, quote, a mental note to take some kind of petty vengeance on him at some point. This is how she reacts to everyone she loves. And I (laughs) am so glad to see she's already grown so fond of Black that she vows his destruction.
1: They're babies. They've got a lot of growing up to do. But the core of Cat's being her Halloween blood, it's there from the start.
0: What isn't there from the start, however, is proper speech or Maybe improper speech?
1: No kidding. We get a new term from Kat, a new way to express frustration or or concern. She says, Heaven's Ascendant, which I have to say, there's a bit of information there, maybe. Something that it, there's a bit of description there. Ascendant. But more importantly, it's the wrong place of gods. Cat, oh, stop. We get it. You grew up in Callow, but move on. We're done.
0: Well, nothing lasts forever. It will get better. And Eris notes, no one rules forever, Lord Black. And may I have your permission to read way too much into a line that has nothing to do with any high-minded, long-ranging connection to later things?
1: I mean, this is a reread podcast. If you're not delving way too deeply into some line now, we're just wasting our time.
0: And we're only supposed to be wasting our listeners' time. Exactly. she says no one rules forever. There is one person on this continent who is and has been ruling, so to speak, forever, who is an eternal, well, living is not quite the right word, but an eternal lesser god of the mortal coil, that is to say, Nessie. And Eris proclaims that no one rules forever. This is the thesis of the series. No one rules forever. And we see the age of wonders and the age of Trismegistus come to an end. Further, we see, Eris, then diabolist, then demi-warlock, then just um the woes plus one. At the end of the story, she does ascend to, in a sense, rule forever. We can look at this line as a foreshadowing of the thesis of the ephemeral nature of even epical time spans, but it can also be read as ironic prefiguration of her ascension. We're introduced to her as she claims that no one rules forever, and we part ways with her as she takes the reins to rule forever. And I think that's a meaningless analysis, but it's fun. Also, she claims that no
1: one rules forever, and you're using that. I have to say, she's already wrong about that anyway, so... I don't think anything else can stand up. The elves monarch is literally called the forever king. So come on, do a little bit of research and what you're talking about before you start going at the black Knight.
0: So when Eris leaves, her eyes pass over where Catherine is, but she doesn't appear to see her. I don't recall if she actually does see her, but the pieces I know is she's tricky. Named people see well in the dark and they meet on the blessed isle pretty soon. I have no recollection of her revealing that she saw her here, but I'm betting that she saw her here. Do you recall?
1: I do not recall. I would be shocked if she didn't. I'm hmm.
0: speaking of shocking things. Yeah.
1: <laughs> There's a, a moment shortly after that, after Eris leaves and Cat comes in to confront Black about that whole conversation, where he's pouring himself some wine, asks if Cat wants any, nonverbally asks, and Cat says, "I shrugged in agreement." The taste was growing on me though I doubted I'd ever drink it by the barrel the way so many pracy did more so than any character in this story and I know we've talked about this before cat you do <laughs> like that's that's a major thing for you there are characters if I recall correctly who have names related to alcohol in some way and you're you're maybe the most prolific drinker in the entire work
0: so i take it back the line about nobody ruling forever was foreshadowing and ironic prefiguration everything ee does is intentional it all shows up but everything has to be intentional black again tells Catherine, i will not lie to you and gives a really good reason if i deceived you i'm sorry if i deceived to you you would inevitably find out i did at the worst possible moment and then avenge yourself in a way that would lead to my downfall these pieces of name lore these little drips this is nothing to us now i think like obviously of course that's how it works but at this point a first-time reader is learning that oh this nonsense trope isn't and i think that's cool
1: yeah it's a it's a line that explains black in an interesting way it contextualizes what he's doing but it also sets the stage a bit more it provides a little bit of detail on the setting in a, a very useful way when you're first experiencing this story I, I completely agree that's i think this is uh what i referred to earlier when we were talking about a, a similar thing this exact line now that i'm reading it and but speaking of uh referring to things that we have discussed before cat is uh cat uh, cat is thinking about black as somebody who does everything in terms of costs and benefits like a bookkeeper and then he she's discussing the ways that he's different than a bookkeeper and includes that he wore plate. And I'm wondering why she doesn't mention that he wears it just so quickly that he's so fast when he wears plate. No bookkeeper could move that quickly in full plate. I'm sorry, e, I love your story so much, but Kat sometimes focuses on plate mail a bit too much. Is and... there
0: anything else than plate mail though? <laughs> That's his thing. That is he's his thing.
1: He's a plate thing. mail guy. He is. And, Cat talking about bookkeepers and plate. She says, "I really hope there aren't any bookkeepers like that out there, you know, put people's heads on pikes, wear plate, ride undead horses." And while not exactly, at least in vibe, she's just talking about Hakram.
0: I look forward to seeing our precious little guy.
1: Miss him, you know? It's weird to it's
0: horrifying though.
1: Miss someone Impressive. we haven't seen, but I miss him.
0: Oh, so long it, within ten chapters, right?
1: Definitely. There's uh,
0: Hagrim just black but better?
1: (laughs) Black but better. Um, Yes, uh, you've nailed it. Hakram is just black but better. And, I mean, he's got to be. He's got way more teeth than Black does, I think. Actually, I don't know that we get a count on Black's teeth, but probably. Pay attention to that. How many teeth does Black have?
0: I don't know if we have a count yet.
1: Not yet. We'll we'll pay attention, and if we need to, we can reach out to the author for some word of God on that one. It's pretty important. Black and Kat talk a little bit about what life is like in the the Imperial Court of Prace. And Black drops a little bit of trivia that's astounding when you actually look at it. He says last year, the High Lordship of Ak changed hands eight times in the span of three days, all of them through assassination. Now, saying the Lordship changed hands eight times in three days has to mean, only in the strictest legal sense, because there's no way they were actually, probably not a coronation, but formally and legally, ritualistically being sworn into office or whatever the equivalent is. But still, that's impressive turnover. That's, like, absurd, and I love it. That It's incredibly praise.
0: You say there's no way. But, yeah, if it's incredibly praise, maybe, though. You know? They... They are cartoon, and they stay that way. Which is the strength of the text. They really don't stop being cartoon even when we get to know them.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely not. Prace is prace, and that doesn't change. You can be sympathetic towards individual pracy rarely, but prace is praise.
0: We also hear how Aeris' mother is a brilliant woman in her own right, one who managed to survive malicious ascension to power without loss of influence— while openly supporting the opposing faction. Cool on two fronts. We see the vast diplomatic prowess held by whoever Eris's mother is, whatever family they are and whatever high seat they hold, but also we see something of the nature of Precy politics where that's possible. There are absolutely stories and contexts where we, where you would expect, there are absolutely stories and contexts where you would expect Upon ascension to the throne, opposition is summarily executed. I mean, there were real-life societies where, upon ascension to the throne, you killed all your siblings, and that was just a matter of course. Praise is something really unique. I'm not saying it's unique among world or fantasy history for opposition to continue, but I mean, just everything added together. Praise is a unique and wonderful place, if you don't mind the tapirs.
1: Filled with... Unique and wonderful people like Eris's mother, apparently. Yeah, it's the normally I would say, okay, sure, her parents did this thing. That doesn't necessarily mean anything for Eris, but it is praise, and bloodlines are kind of a big thing. And the amount of education passed down to make sure that the bloodlines seem like a bigger thing than they actually are yeah, this actually says a lot about Eris more so than you would expect. And speaking of. Um, unique and wonderful people. There's a uh, sort of throwaway line here. I'm going to rephrase that. I use that term a lot. Speaking of unique and wonderful people, Kat is making an example in her mind of something kind of absurd. She says, people don't get names by picking out flower arrangements. I don't have any proof to back this up, but I guarantee there's an exception to that rule. There has to be a... Haunted florist or something of the of that nature.
0: It's the avuncular florist.
1: <laughs> of course, it is. There's, there's no way that's not a name somewhere.
0: The frightening part is the avuncular florist is only a villainous name. Truly, the horror is wrought by florists past, unspeakable.
1: Cat and Black wrap up their conversation with some very heartwarming back and forth about how they are coming at the world with a pretty similar mindset uh, about knowing that one can do better. But in the midst of this, Kat says, it was frustrating the way they didn't understand why I was like I am. So after a while, I stopped trying. Kat's a special person in the setting. She's the protagonist. She's unique. She does things that nobody else can do. But in this moment, this line reads like the cat is just... She's not like other girls. <laughs> it just feels, it feels very much like Cat being a teenager. There's more to it. There's a lot of importance in this conversation. Um, it's the two of them tying together why Black picked her. It's setting the stage for a ton. You're talking about wanting to change the world because only you can, and that's what. Kat is and does for the entire story. But she is just frustrated that people just don't get her, you know?
0: I have never heard you say anything more cruel. I I can't go on like this. End the episode.
1: Just like Kat is frustrated by people not understanding her, we are frustrated by a lack of time, because that is all that we have for today.
0: Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Arata as we discuss Swords. Swords, people.
1: And short sword fights.
0: We'll see you then. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com intro music for this episode was the cradle of your soul by lemon music studio music for the epigraph was stomping rock parenthesis four shots parenthesis by alex grohl outro music which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine is price of freedom by daddy as music the music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com music Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at TheLongPrice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name. receive personalized stories and art, or even join a PGTE-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and liege, always claimant, never the named, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 11, Sucker Punch.
1: The Elves Monarch is literally called the Forever King. So come on, just do a little bit of research on what you're talking about before you start going at the Black Knight.
0: Well, that'll be the sequel. Practical Guide 2. The Forever King? The Forever King. Oh, okay, okay. Chapter 1, Book 1. End of the Forever King. Take that, you worm! Catherine said, slamming the forever
1: (laughs) What on earth? This is the crossover that nobody asked for or expected. What is going on right now? Or one. I can't. I'm okay. Listen, you say that there are probably and I say that, too. I would wager there are probably 750 Worm Practical Guide crossovers if you just do a brief search on Archive of our own, or or space battle forums, or something.
0: But this one is mine.
1: True, and that makes it the best. And let no one tell you different.
0: First patron who does that to you, I am writing them this story.
1: For Never King, oh boy, patron- listeners, you are in for a treat.